So here's where we're going to be today. We're going back into our time in history with Solomon. So we're going to be in 1 Kings. And the title right now is Splitting Hairs, But Do Not Divide the Sun. Splitting Hairs, But Do Not Divide the Sun. And so following 2 Samuel, which is where we had a good run, we're now understanding some greater insight with regard to Solomon. We're going to be picking it up in actually chapter 3. The previous teaching, as my notes show me, was in the dream scheme of things. Before that, you'll remember the infamous, the cleanup because of the WhatsApp. And I think those are online. But as we come back into this, again, revisiting it, it really is an opportunity to see what an amazing act of grace that was visited upon Solomon at the closure, the tenure of his father, David. He did not replace the historical acclaim to his father, David. David is still noted as the great king of Israel as well as the psalmist. Solomon had written many songs, many proverbs, but one of the things that we see God showing in this particular heritage of a son is his grace and mercy in honoring a pledge to the one who is in fact the father, David. The promise that was given to him is that there would be one that would sit on his throne. And David understood that to be an eternal promise and to be very likely a messianic anticipation. Because David knew in his heart God was going to do something really awesome, really redemptively. As we look at Solomon's life, though, we see coming from this dream state that he was going to be privileged because of an offer made to him to have extraordinary wisdom and endowment, a supernatural empowerment to figure things out, to read people well. All manner of sciences he would have understood. All this stuff that we talked about last week, he would know. And yet he would be required as well with discernment to employ wisdom based on experience and assessment. Well, we get that responsibility and privilege too. We have probably in some ways much limited experience. We have perhaps to our advantage much technical experience. But those things mean nothing if God is not imparting to us in times of difficulties, supernatural understanding. How do I employ what it is I know? Technical, secular, whatever it may be, to see me through this moment right now in which my choice can render blessings or it could be a gaff and a goof. 
Solomon right now, after this dream, is what you would see one who, as a king, would be prepared to do, and that's to attend an audience and to render decisions. I don't understand how all of that goes. It would be difficult for me, but I assume it would be much like in my history. As a teacher, the lesson has been given. The charge of doing the work through paper is given, and I take a position back at my desk. And in the course of that assignment, there can be disputes that arise between students pestering one another or one that doesn't quite understand what's expected of them. And so they will raise their hand to come back and to visit with me for an insight, for clarity. And so I've been in that position. Pastorally can happen. Very seldom am I interrupted in a teaching to have a rendering of a decision made, but sometimes I get calls, texts, and so forth, give it my best shot. But this was actually his assigned duty. And how the Lord chose to make this one of his first opportunities of rendering divine wisdom, I think there is, I think there is something that's going to be revealed in that as we move into it. The dream's taken place. Solomon's answer to God on whatever it is he wished he could have. And he says, I just need wisdom to govern these people that are so vast and I'm just a child. And remember, God said, well, because you didn't ask for what would have been obvious to many others, I will give you what you did not ask for, everything. But you will be unlike any man that has ever lived, full of wisdom. And the idea there is that he would represent a kingdom age in which prosperity was abounding. Peace would be undisturbed, unbroken. Power would be displayed. And so we enter into verse 16. And let's see what adjudication he makes to honor the gifting of wisdom that he asked for. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. So let's pause for a moment and understand as well what is imposed upon them. They are coming out from what would be the cultural shadow zones of immorality unethical behavior. This was, as it's been identified, their vocation. Obviously, pending a stretch that would have been in what we would say the full-term caring of a child. And they approach him, and this for them potentially could have been criminal. They would have approached him, and it appears that this is not simply a narration telling us who they are, but that Solomon would have known where they came from, what they had been doing. And actually, in this scenario, what that would implicate them. 
that was not lawfully allowed, nor was it spiritually permitted. It actually came with a sentence of death. But here they are, coming before the king. What trust or what desperation, which is it that drives a person to come before the king in the belief that in so doing, the potential of that confession, the rendering of what it is needs to be said, would not compel a death sentence upon us. So here's the picture that I want to show you. This is precisely what he was to give himself as a picture to us. That there is a great king who is aware of all offenses. The scriptures tell us there is none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Solomon would say in the dedication of the temple that there is no one who does not sin. And he makes an appeal even in his temple prayer, his dedicatory opening, that there would be the desire to have the mercy of God upon his people. And for them, in repenting, could be restored and saved from the consequence of that. So with what these women are doing presently, which perhaps conversely we could say we care less about in terms of virtue and in terms of the sanctity of life, it was an issue here. Something's driving one of them or both of them to make an appearance, if you would, to come clean about the situation that is desperately tugging on their hearts. Solomon right now will be required to know which heart is true and which heart is full of lying and deception. Interesting. You know, God's capable of that. And in fact, one of the things that we need to see in this, which I think is encouraging, is that because he knows it, he wants to make amplified that we are assured that that will not be the excuse for not coming to him for justice. I didn't say judgment. We've talked about this before. For fair and impartial rendering and listening to a case and being able to, in that case, dismiss the charges of offense against us because he's fair and he's reasonable. The picture that we see here, too, as we advance through this is that there is actually a son and another son whose life now is in the balance of evaluation it moves on to say that this is what compelled these women to seek the heart of the king. So hence, I want to be able to say that most assuredly, this world out there 
that involves itself in much that has nothing to do with God, everything that in fact can be both unethical and immoral, those same people, that culture needs to know that there's a king that has made provision for audience for them. Somehow, these gals got in to have their case heard. And each of them would stand on that premise alone, indicted to hear only one thing. I have nothing to hear from you, only one thing to say to you. Unlawful, sinful, you shall be killed, justifiably. One woman said, this is the story. Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I'd given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose, verse 20, in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. 21. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. 22 gives us now what is the statement of the need to have an evaluation made on behalf of two different perspectives. One is telling the truth, the other is lying. Both of them compelled, though, for the same reason. They're in love with a baby. One lost, the other alive. A quick switch, seemingly to the one that we understand right now, is not telling the truth, would have been seemingly all it would have taken. That is somewhat what we would call delusional. I've never heard of <clears throat> a mother not knowing the smell and the cooing and the crying and the temperament of their baby. Now, guys can get it wrong. I already shared with you. If I lost Zachary and Knott's Berry Farm, that's not really a lot of credit to me. Because we at times, it's just a baby. But to the mom, no, that's not just a baby. That's a part of me. All a part of me. And so 
what does Solomon do? And what's the picture right now? The picture right now is that both of these women are relying on what will be the analysis of Solomon in the accuracy of what they are saying or the read that will be supernatural that Solomon takes on it. And so as he's listened carefully, he is able to give a recitation of what it is he heard. Coming back to a point, again, in this illustration, this is what God is able to do. He's able to give a recitation of what it is he's heard. There is a day in which those, any of us, those on the outside, not a part of us, will stand before the Lord, and the confession that is heard presently from you and I right now where we're at was, Lord, I'm a mess. I have failed. I am a sinner. I am that harlot. I am that angry, murderous person. I am that thief. I am that liar. I am everything, Lord, that you are not. And I appeal to you for your grace and for your mercy. I cannot stand on the merit of what I've done and what I know myself to be. That's the premise, what's hidden in this story. There will be those, though, who say, hmm, in the dead of night, I conspired to make a switch. I will be able to pull this off. I will be able to say why, before the king, he must listen to me and adjudicate in my favor. And the problem with that is that God will see through it, will measure the individual regarding it. Splitting hairs is a term that means seemingly two points or perspectives that are indistinguishable. No big deal. We can make allowance there. Why make so much of this over that? It's really not that important. And that's what can happen both in our faith and it's what can happen as well in our culture. The culture says, don't make so much of God and don't impose so much of God on the way that we choose to live, what we want to do. That's the carnal mindset, to have its way set on the indulgences of the flesh. In this case, for these women, it's tragic because this was their vocation. What happened? Was it simply a wrong choice? Was it an abandonment by a husband, by a man that had committed themselves to each one of them? What was it? Well, we don't know. We only know that this was ultimately their sin. It was the path that they chose. But something now in the maternal is making a change, perhaps, in the industrial. There's something about life that requires the decision of, well, how then shall I live? And these women, very likely in this situation, with the exception to one, are going to be tested in their desire to change. And they're going to be willing to change, one of them, for the sake of a life that will be used as the test. 
love sacrifices. And that means to literally the other person's demise. It's one thing to say, I will die for you. It's another thing to acknowledge that God has done that. There's nothing that any of us can achieve by frivolously dying for somebody if it isn't in the justification of one thing, what God would do if he were in our place. And the thing is, is that God was in our place and did do what is not required of us. Jumping ahead, I'm simply setting the course right now that one heart under this test will reveal the same love that God has through his son. Splitting hairs, you mean it's important to God that there is a distinguishing difference, even if it's just a little, between what a believer will do and how they will live their life, and another who's simply living life, but without believing. Yep, it's that important. It's that important to hold the distinction. It's that important to be able to say, the king is merciful, he is gracious, he is attentive, he knows exactly what it is we've done, where we've done it, how often we've done it, and his desire is to forgive and to adjudicate mercifully. Why? Because anytime the king is able to make a decision that renders a person without guilt, guess what he gets? He gets somebody that's liberated and free. And the other thing he gets is a true servant who, knowing that they've been forgiven much, does what? Reciprocates by loving much. That's what happens to us in how we've presented ourselves before the king. And we've heard about it. Man, when he locks eyes on you, you are going to be destroyed. You're going to hear the litany, the 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 full charges against you, and you're going to be put on your face, and then you're going to be dragged out. Man, when they see the movie of your life, when you get to heaven, there's going to be bagfuls of popcorn served for free. <clears throat> and when that last kernel of popcorn is eaten, you're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. I always figured my life was going to be displayed even before I knew about 5K or whatever these things are. And I, I so was distressed about heaven until I realized that isn't the best part of heaven. The best part of heaven is my tape will never roll. It's been torched, trashed, gone. The feature will be Jesus himself. Let's see what he addresses as he moves through this assessment. Twenty-three. The one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one, 
and my son is the living room. The king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. Now this is an authentic sword. He's asking for it, but he's not wielding it. You need to understand that. He's asking for it. It's going to be brought. He's not wielding it. It's a tool right now to represent a decision that will be made by him. And he's testing love by the implication somebody's going to die. One of these women or something else. That's what they're looking at. And the king said, verse 25, Divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Verse 26 tells us the reaction. The woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son and said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child. And by no means kill him. But the other said, notice this. Notice the cultural language here. Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. And so the king in verse 27 answered and said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. What was the proof in that? What love was willing to do? Not see harm to that which was its focus. We've come into a culture in which we have said, if it can't be mine, it will not be yours. That's usually one of the headlines that tell us there has been an incident of lives taken. And it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but it certainly does not define what love says it is. Nor does the taking of an individual's life define what love, through the scriptures, truly says that it is. It's sacrificial for someone, not selfless towards others. I believe that at any time in my growing with five brothers, my father, my mother would have given up their life to save me because I saw them actually do that. different times in which I got myself into different predicaments. I saw my dad dive after my fishing brother in a cold Washington stream and flailing and boots filling up and dad went in after him. But I also saw, I also saw dad go after a drowning little boy in another body of water. I saw him take off from the gravel bar and shoot across, peeling off his shirt 
and diving in to save a little boy going under. That is love, both for what that little boy represented to that family onshore and for what, as well, was the predicament of my brother, Jim. I saw my dad. It seems to all happen in Washington. <laughs> my twin brother put his hand down on a flint rock. I think that's the correct word. It was flint. It broke off and severed his vein right here. He was bleeding as one with a slit wrist. I remember that I looked down and you could see seemingly right to the bone. And then within just seconds, blood flowed. And my dad worked very quickly to save him. He also would save me some 20 years later. Love endeavors to save that which is negligibly or accidentally at risk of dying. And love does not die selflessly. I had a dear friend who took his life. That was a selfless, or that was a selfish death, not a selfless death. Loved the guy. Saved absolutely. Talented beyond any skills I possessed. Intelligent, amazing. But somehow he not come before the king in a time in which the adjudication would have been be free I love you you're doing great go in faith and be rewarded somehow culture spoke a different message to him and disappointment spoke a different message to him so in the close right now as we look at this, and when I was saying that in the title, splitting hairs, important to understand that we are distinguishably different enough to say, I stand on this principle. No, it's not just good that the sun be divided. Divide not the sun. Split the hairs and divide not the sun. And this was the cry of the woman and this was the reason that Solomon voiced it, that he could see the integrity of a heart willing to say, he's mine, but I'm giving him that he might live. He's mine, but I'm giving him that he might live. And ultimately, she might live. It's a picture really of what God says through Jesus, the Son of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have an everlasting life. Divide not the son. Herod pursued insanely an objective that was both culturally and honestly satanically governed in which after two years discovering that there was Messiah on the scene, a king yet to be, deployed his army to go into Bethlehem and the region there and to kill every son two years and under. These babies are fresh out of the oven and the love of this mother for that son 
contrary to the love that the other woman did not have, could not prove. Only if I can't have him, no one will. And Solomon saw in it, and it defines love, and it defines at the same time the measure and means that God will use to bring to the surface the hidden things of the heart. Why? That you don't have to either, one, devastate your life by a choice that you'll make or hurt somebody else in the process. It happens, though, all the time. Splitting hairs divide not the sun. Splitting hairs, not something that I can really point to as an analogy on my page, but it means where two things are almost indistinguishable, does it really matter at all? And the Word of God would say, absolutely it matters. Absolutely the sanctity of the innocent life matters. Though this is not a sermon on abortion, it has at the same time the need to be addressed. Divide not the son. Divide not the daughter. Those lives... Numbering now in the millions, I believe like 62, 63, 64 million, I think just alone within our nation since the time of the rendering of 1973's Roe versus Wade. Absolutely split the hairs. You needed to, Supreme Court justices, you needed to say this distinction is so important we will divide the hairs. We will split it, but we will not divide the babies. And we're on the precipice of seeing a change that needs to be made because it is righteous to be made. And the culture is all about, well, if I can't have it this way, then they will not have it this way either. It's a perfect almost contemporary analogy to where we're at. And the king says, I can tell who's honestly, sincerely conveying love that is a tribute to me, as opposed to those that are feigning a love by having no honor concerning life that I have authored, that I've ordained. And so in this conclusionary point, the king answered, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered and they feared the king for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer Justice. Fair and reasonable dealings of God to the person that approaches God. Not the judgment that renders no escape, no opportunity, just humiliation in heaven, embarrassment as the entire world brought before God gets to view your picture that you starred in for however many years you lived in, 
the king says, that is not my throne room. I have a reward, Bema seat, in which you will be blessed. And for those who have not chosen, those who have endeavored to stand before me, not looking to me for mercy, for peace, for grace, but looking to see if their excuse would work, it will be an altogether different place they will go and the choices there's to make and there'll be no turning from it. So this is allowed to be Solomon's really first act of anointed wisdom. And I think it's important because it speaks of the domestic issues in our lives today. The home is important. Babies are important. And it's important to stand on the word of God when we have a nation just north of us that's saying, the Bible, mostly mythical. Do what you want, how you want to do it, when you want to do it, and it doesn't matter concerning morality and norms. Mores and norms we studied in sociology. What's normal? Well, now abnormal's normal. Mores, morals, convictions that are righteous, that anybody can say, you know what, that's the way it ought to be done. It was actually a great word used in the 60s, righteous. Now they didn't know exactly what it meant, but I think the Lord allowed that to be an utterance because it's what people crave, is to have things done right, decently, godly, or correctably in a manner that shows humility. I like that word. The one I didn't like was dig. Do you dig that? Because now I realize the implications are more severe. There's going to be a place that's going to hold me and somebody's going to have to dig it out. I don't like dig as well. I'll use it to humor myself. Tried it a couple times. It just didn't work for me. and It doesn't work for me super well now. But righteous, I like that. How much we need it but we're not going to get it by how well we live. We're going to get it by our simple understanding that the Lord's made provision in grace through faith, not a result of works that any one of us could boast. And it makes all the difference in the choices that you make. All the difference.